You're listening to Law and Justice. I'm Jane Mulcahy. That beautiful song was Pixelated Pictures, which was a collaboration by Vox Liminis in Glasgow. This is a project that works with former offenders, people who've been to prison, and musicians and artists who together befriend one another and make music and write songs. And that is a fine example of a piece of work that's thoughtful and poignant and Fergus McNeil shared that with the audience at the ICPA in London last week at the conference on Building Better Futures. Next up is that segment on Building Better Futures. I'm Fiona McGregor and I'm from Australia. I've been working in prisons for about 15 years in UK and Australia. Um, I'm really passionate about prison education uh, and learning in its broadest possible sense creating really beautiful learning spaces within a secure environment. You gave a very dynamic talk there earlier, Fiona, about desistance and learning and finished with this great kind of question uh, as to whether desistance really is learning. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Right, certainly. I think as something for me, when I was teaching, I would see uh, students in, in the prison Really, I could see changes in them, in their attitudes, in their values, even in their attitudes to their work, but also to people around them, to life questions. Um, But if they didn't get a certificate, it was somehow felt that the program was a failure. Or if they, if recidivism was used as a measure, the program was just uh, sort of considered. 
considered to be a failure. And, and what I felt was that those measures don't tell the whole story. So I became very interested in desistance theory because it looks at the journey travelled towards stopping from crime. And it made sense of my experience as a prison educator working with the learners in a castoral setting. And also, I suppose, the kind of using education as a means of starting to see yourself differently, maybe a positive self, a different self. Absolutely. But what I'm finding in my current research, I'm doing my PhD now, looking at the relationship between learning and desistance from crime, is that the offenders that I've been working with do not see themselves as offenders Oh, brilliant. Wow. Um, they, they, when they come into the space, they see themselves as learners. But when they go back into the prison, so the general prison context, they don't actually perceive, that doesn't dominate, that they don't actually okay. find themselves yeah. that way. But they love when they come into the, the yeah. that they are a learner and they are allowed to be their most authentic self. And, and just um, from a terminology point of view, is there a difference uh, to you in learner rather than student or yes, is it experiential or something or why no, did you choose that? Why did I choose that? I think it's because when we think of students, we think of a very formal fixed system okay. of education, which is a much more traditional model. From my point of view, if we look at learning in as broad as possible sense and we look at its its out, sort of outcomes as being increasing agency, um, growth mindset, all of those things I talked about today, then I, I want to think of my students as learners and I want them to be in charge of curriculum and have input of curriculum about um, pedagogical style. That if you, if you like to think of them as being service users, okay. we never really consult with our learners yes. about what you need or want. What you need yeah. or want. And my research project actually was observing one particular class where the teacher very much was sitting at the desk and they were all getting on with individual projects that they decided on. And their levels of transformation that they reported were quite phenomenal. Right. Whereas the prison authorities thought this was terribly slack teaching and nothing yeah, yeah, was going yeah, yeah. on. But what was going on was extraordinary. Yeah. And in a more authoritarian classroom that I observed, there was far less. Okay. Going they didn't on. feel free. No. And they, they themselves or be different or that's grow. Right. And their self-efficacy was considerably less because they depended on the teacher to tell them everything. Hello, my name is Hilary Nyamo Marcus and I am a broadcaster slash uh, media journalist, I suppose, uh, if, that's, if, if such a title exists. I currently work as a freelance for the BBC, uh, ITN and National Prison Radio, um, which is uh, owned by Prison Radio Association, which is a radio charity based here in England and Wales. And Hilary, you actually got your first break on the radio through being in prison yourself. Absolutely correct. So I served a 15-month sentence at a fine institution called uh, HMP Brixton. Um, And in my first couple of weeks, I decided to undertake a course, um, a radio level one and two in radio production. And uh, beyond that course, I thought, hmm... Okay, I actually might have a knack for radio and uh, with much encouragement from, you know, the staff, uh, from my tutor, I decided to go for an opening that come available within uh, National Prison Radio. So I went for an interview and they said, Hillary, look, you know, you're absolutely amazing. You're a diamond in the rough, yeah, yeah, <laughs> as yeah, they yeah. say, you know, and we can coach you and develop you and mold you. And from that 
minute I decided that I was going to completely apply myself and, and give it my all and just see where this leads. Um, prior to going into prison, I had no interest whatsoever. Did you even uh, listen to the radio or did you think did. it was for old people? No, in the car I did. <laughs> yeah. I did actually in the yeah. car. Yeah. Uh, but never, you know, when I didn't, I didn't go to the radio as my place of yeah. solace. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. to, to say that, you know, I was much more of a visual type okay. of person. Um, but, you know, what's amazing and magical about radio is that once you captivate an audience, you know, an audience can be captivated by the story being told, by the presenter's voice, you know, by an array of things. Yeah. Once the, your audience is captivated, then the imagination pretty much does yes. the rest. And, and it's so different and so powerful that it, it, it easily seeps into your subconscious without you even knowing it. My name's Andrew Couples. I'm an architect with the LR Group in the USA. I've been working on jails, prisons, courthouses for my entire career, practically about 35 years, because I believe that architecture is an art and a science, but above all, it's a social science, and we can actually affect the environment for people. Okay. And, and how did you get into it, I suppose? As, as a young architect, you could have decided to build anything but you 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 wanted to kind of have this effect on people's lives through buildings I guess yes uh, yeah it, it, it really evolved uh, at the time I was working for a firm and there was a government program funding uh, some some construction I got very interested in it because it's it's really a very unique problem because you're effectively divine, designing an entire city mm -hmm. in terms of how people live and creating an environment for staff and for inmates or residents alike. It's a hopefully supportive of better yeah. outcomes. Rather than destructive, I suppose, because Absolutely. a building could also have negative uh, uh, effects. Yeah, yeah. Architecture can have negative effects on, on a lot of things. So you really have an opportunity to create a very positive environment that hopefully will allow people to, to be more successful. Today we were discussing best practices from the free world okay. applied to a correctional facility for mental health treatment. Smaller okay. units, okay. more normative environment, biophilic okay. design and views of nature. Tomorrow we're doing a presentation on the new Campus Kilpatrick, which okay. is a new LA, Los Angeles County model right. for how they want to treat juvenile offenders and hopefully keep them from coming back or moving to the adult system someday. And, and are you, I mean, do you honestly believe, and, and maybe it's an impertinent question, but can architecture do that for people? Can architecture help people not have to come back to prison? Architecture can provide a better environment for people to excel. Okay. You can't rehabilitate anybody, <laughs> but you can provide opportunities for self-rehabilitation and opportunities for them to excel. More importantly, you can provide a more environment for staff to do their job okay. and do it in a positive relationship-based way. That's really what Campus Kilpatrick's all about. It's a derivation of what's been called the Missouri model okay. of small, safe, youth-focused, and community-based. Okay. And is there more light in, in, in these type of institutions? Because what I find when I go to prisons is that often the ceilings seem very kind of low. and there's uh, I, I think that's part of what we need to do. We need to enhance the environment. We need to think about what a normative environment is and what makes a space comfortable mm -hmm. for, for people, both for staff and inmates or residents. Of course, because they're all sharing the same space and coexisting. So if, it, if it's negative for um, prisoners, it would be negative also for, for staff, I presume. And you mentioned some sort of materials there. Are there uh, prisons often have a lot of stainless steel and kind of 
industrial type finishes would you be looking at softer type uh, furnishings or again i think that becomes a choice of the management style okay which is the many times that we have to first discuss how mm -hmm. we can change the management style uh the campus kilpatrick is built like a village it's heavy timber construction oh, lovely wood floors wow carpeted throughout yeah. uh normal tile yeah. normal fixtures so much more home-like much more home -like. in fact that was the intent to make it feel more like a a, a small house in a small environment the, the housing units only each house 12 people shark was launched in late 2015 Initially, there were three pilot projects in Dublin, one dealing with violent offenders, one dealing with prolific burglars in a particular geographical location, and the other dealing with quality of life offences. Things like drug dealing, criminal damage, not super high-end, intense levels of harm to the community, but really disruptive for the people living around them and making the area a less pleasant place to be. It's the three agencies, the guards probation and prison working together very interestingly people do not want referrals to the scheme from the courts they want the judges to stay out of it because if you have judges saying this is a great scheme they'll be trying to sentence people to it and that is not what the agencies want they want to look at their statistical data to see who are the most prolific people who are the most dangerous people who do we think will benefit most from our intensive case management if you read about integrated offender management or speak to people they'll be very keen to say well we don't want to become like the guards if you're probation or the guards don't want to all of a sudden become social workers but what they do learn is there's a great value to the strengths of the other agencies when they work together and when they share information relationships 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 it keeps coming back to this and they're being able to pick up the phone and talk to people and realizing you're on the same page with the same goals. So if community safety and reduced offending is the common goal of all the agencies, then doing things slightly differently or making adjustments philosophically and psychologically and how you go about your business makes a lot of sense. We've come from levels of high overcrowding and slopping out to a real focus on sentence planning, interagency working, a partnership approach, a little bit more discourse around strengths and building relationships also with external parties like the Department of Health, Housing, Education. So trying to let civil servants and other departments realise that people are not the property of justice forevermore, that they're citizens and that we need a connected approach if we actually want better outcomes. So Fergus, you were giving the keynote address today. Can you tell me a little bit about your ideas on the subject of rehabilitation, which is, as you described earlier, a contested topic and concept? Yeah, so my basic argument is that when we think about rehabilitation, talk about it and practice it in criminal justice, most of the time we're focused on ways of trying to support individuals to change at the personal level. So educational programs, offending behaviour programs, those kinds of things. And while it is really important to give people opportunities to develop themselves and their capabilities, rehabilitation is much more complicated than that. And the three other domains that are crucial are uh, the question of people's civil rights, so their legal rehabilitation as a restored citizen, 
their um, moral and political position as somebody who is entitled to be part of a dialogue about how society should be ordered, which relates to questions of enfranchisement, and their uh, social position, so the extent to which they're accepted by those around them. And essentially my pitch to correctional leaders at this conference is that they need to look up and out beyond uh, that kind of personalised focus that tends to preoccupy correctional staff um, and to think about how to engage with civil society uh, on those other questions of civil rights, of political participation and of social acceptance. Yeah, you, you kind of said that what we need is actually a social movement. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, corrections, you know, prisons, probation, they can't change society by themselves. They can't um, change the climate into which people return um, but, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be part of a wider effort to try mm. to, to create a softer landing um, and, a, and a better climate for reintegration. So the, the, the message there is just that corrections need to be part of that movement uh, and, a, and a, in some respects a leading part, but they have to reach out and engage with civil society organisations, um, with the media, with faith communities, with businesses, with voluntary sector, with all sorts of kinds of civic associations to make this something that we're all interested in and yeah. all engaged in. Gary Stevenson, Chief Executive of Restorative Solutions, which is a community interest company, a not-for-profit um, organisation. I've been working in the criminal justice sector for the last um, 12 years, developing innovative approaches using restorative techniques. Okay, and you were giving a paper today, Gary, about a restorative prison. Can, can you tell me a little bit about how that's working and which prison it is and what type of prisoners are there? Yeah, we're working with a number of prisons, a private sector prison, which has a female wing as well as a male wing, and a public sector prison, which is a, a, a an all-male um, wing. And we're developing an approach there where conflict within the prison is actually resolved internally. And we're actually using, as, as trained practitioners, we're using prisoners to resolve some of the conflict themselves. And that conflict involves conflict between staff and prisoners, conflict between prisoners uh, on the wing, and conflict between staff. Right. And so do they go through some kind of specialised training, these prisoner um, advocates or mediators? Yeah, they do a five-day day training course which equips them to, to deal with situations of conflict restoratively, either informally or, or formally. And did, was there staff resistance to having prisoners so involved? In, particularly, I'm thinking of complaints involving perhaps staff members. Were they a bit wary and suspicious? Yes, of course they yeah. were. Yeah. Yeah. And they, had, they had to see in action yeah. and they had, to, they had to take small steps yeah. with it. But once once they've seen that it's no threat and no danger to them, it's actually making their working environment safer, then they've wholeheartedly uh, embraced the approach. Yeah, it was interesting. You mentioned that you went to a meeting and gave them some uh, a bit of a sell, and then some guy who was involved in the programme went in and bowled them over. Yeah, I just spoke to somebody who was at that meeting, and she said, you're right, they're all glazed over when I was speaking. <laughs> but when I brought the guy in who's, who's, who's serving four or five years, um, term, he came in and told them how it's how he was using it on the wing and how it's changed his life and how it's changed the lives of others. They were they were just blown away. Yeah, and 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 also you were referring to hard data, which of course when you're dealing with corrections and recidivism, you have to be able to show measures. But then there's nothing like a real life story either for bringing those stats to life. Would you agree with that, Gary? Yeah, a combination of a narrative, a, yeah. a good story, and some hard data mm. is, is absolutely critical because at the end of the day, yeah, we believe this is a great approach. We've got evidence to prove it. Mm -hmm. And if we've got to get government to change policy, legislation, and invest in it, we've got to have the numbers. I mean, I just want to share the story. Yeah. You know, I want to share 
you know, in front of a global audience uh, at, such as this one at the ICPA conference, I think it's quite important that we sort of showcase, you know, um, the, the positives that can come out from such a negative experience. Mm. And it's almost ironic, really, yeah. that, you know, you find someone like me who's uh, developed a career from, you know, perhaps the worst yeah. uh, possible thing that could happen, happen to, you, to, yeah. to, to anyone, not, yeah. not me yeah. alone. And also, you know, uh, there are a few organizations here as well that just goes on to prove that, you know, when it comes to human beings, regardless of how many times they fall, society just needs to have that, adopt that more of an approach of, you know, a wraparound approach that sure. look, regardless of how many times you fall down, we're going to support you each and every single yeah. time until you're ready to make that change for yourself. Yeah. And, and it and has I, to be for yourself, doesn't it? You it can't does. do it for anyone else. No, you really. cannot. You cannot. That decision has to be yeah. start with the Man in yeah. the Mirror, which yeah, is yeah. actually a very popular song, Michael Jackson, Man in the Mirror on National Prison Radio. Highly, That's so highly funny. requested yeah. song. Um, and, and, it's just uh, con- totally amazing to just sort of see the innovation that's going on behind the scenes to sort of better the system yeah. in a way to improve prisoner uh, experience uh, through you know if they if they unfortunately find themselves within the system and hopefully reduce recidivism and cost on you know the wider society yeah. as a well, be in monetary or peace and security you mentioned this whole concept of a right to rehabilitation. How can we make that real and meaningful for people? Well, there's, there's kind of legal aspects to that, and then there's practical aspects to it. So legally, we have to look at systems that uh, re-elevate people who have paid their debt. So we, we can decide in society if we want that when people are punished, they have to lose certain um, aspects of their social position. Uh, but when they've done their time, when their debt's settled, we also have to make a commitment to restoration of that. And that can be legally secured through the way that we handle things like disclosure or non-disclosure of criminal records. Um, it also relates to the, the questions of political enfranchisement and participation, which are uh, very topical in the UK at the moment. Uh, so we can do it legally, and practically speaking, it also involves a bit of redistribution. We have to be prepared to take money um, and expend it on um, enabling people to secure social participation when punishment is over. Uh, and that can't be done for free, it can't be done right. just by them, it has to be done by the state, uh, putting resources where they're needed in housing and health and education and well-being um, to, uh, to enable people to participate. So higher taxes for if, better social services if that's what it and education. Yeah, I, I would say so. And I think if we, if we don't make the choice to deal with inequalities, not just in the criminal yeah. justice system, but in society, then uh, by default, we make the choice to live with the consequences. And the consequences are poorer health and more crime, among other things. So yeah, I, I would support higher taxation uh, as long as the money that it generates is used wisely and sensibly. Sure, uh, for the and not to bail out banks or such like. Not so much. Yeah, and so would you ever consider Fergus McNeil for uh, Prime Minister of <laughs> Scotland, or would you ever consider running, or do you think, you know, this, the, the, there are so many people with lots of good ideas here, um, but how can we get politicians more generally to think differently? Well, we talk to them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not interested in running for okay. political office. I didn't uh, think I so, really. I don't think that's where my skills yeah. or networks are. But yeah. I, I think um, trying to work with politicians to improve the quality of political debate and dialogue is really important. In fact, in political science, some argue that we need to kind of turn away from debate mm. in, in which we take sides and argue mm. adversarially against each other and towards dialogue and sure. deliberation where yeah. we all bring our ideas, we yeah. discuss our values, 
we share our experiences, we, we learn to listen to each other and we construct a better politics of crime and punishment through that dialogue. So politicians have to be part of that, but so, so do all of us. Justice. Before we move on to the next segment on licensees, I'd just like to congratulate Mr. Michael Donnan, who's the head of the Irish Prison Service. Last Wednesday, he was honoured by the board of the ICPA and won Best Director of a Prison Service. I don't know how many nominees there were. I wasn't there at that point, but apparently he was nominated by the directors of Norway, Sweden and Finland, which by any accounts have some very progressive of penal systems and approaches to crime and punishment and how they treat people in their care and custody. And so uh, I suppose Michael was chosen because he and his senior management team have implemented a system of reform since 2011 with the near elimination of slopping out, tackling serious overcrowding, starting to work with outside organisations, building uh, tighter relationships with probation and the Gardaí, as well as community-based organisations, and also exploiting the expertise, the lived experience of prisoners and offenders themselves in programmes such as the Red Cross and the Listener Scheme. So I think it was a very nice outcome, all things considered. Well done to Michael for his own personal achievement and well done also to the Irish Prison Service for having come so far in six years and placing personal development and human dignity more at the centre of their daily work. I'm Jane Mulcahy, joined now by Dr. Mark Cullinan in studio. Hi, Mark. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're based here at UCC? Yeah, um, I'm a postdoctoral researcher uh, here in UCC in the School of Applied Social Studies. Okay, and you have organised a seminar titled Licensees in Private Rented Accommodation, the Forgotten Subsector. It sounds intriguing. Can you tell us a bit about it? Well, what this came out of was um, 
a recent uh, exploratory research study undertaken uh, by uh, myself, uh, Professor Cahill O'Connell and Dr Joe Finnerty in the School of Applied Social Studies. Um, it's an exploratory study uh, in collaboration with the Threshold uh, Tenants uh, Organisation that is really seeking to, to look at one particular subset of, of renters in Ireland, uh, licensees. Um, and licensees would, would, would be those renters uh, who aren't the stipulated tenant uh, in an occupancy arrangement. Um, so, so there has been a real lack of research uh, on the sort of the, the conditions experienced by licensees, the issues that, that, that are raised by their sort of their legal status, and also in the context of the current uh, housing crisis and rental crisis, uh, are there are there problems being exacerbated uh, or not? So, this is an exploratory study that was kind of looking into the experiences of, of some people uh, in Cork and Dublin who are in these kind of occupancy arrangements. Okay, so just to bring it back again, um, because I know nothing about this. Um, so the licensee renter is not the person who'd be on the uh, the lease. That's right. <coughs> um, I suppose at, at some point in life, all of us are, are licensees uh, in the as as children in the family home. Uh, we're all sort of we don't we don't have sort of the, that's essentially our, our legal status. Uh, but as if, to give you a few examples of kind of licensee arrangements. Anyone who's residing in a house with the landlord uh, present is a licensee, say the, the renter room scheme oh, okay. or lodger. Uh, anyone uh, who's in a house share um, but who, who comes into the house or, or, or apartment at the invitation of, a, of an existing tenant. Okay, so um, when one leaves and a new one arrives, they are then a licensee? Um, correct, so long as it's at the invitation of a tenant and they're not named on the lease. Okay. They, they are a licensee and in so doing, they don't come under the, the Residential Tenancies Act, which of course provides for the main kind of legal and regulatory structures uh, of the sector, which includes, of course, for tenants, access to the, the Residential Tenancies Board dispute resolution mechanisms, uh, as well as the, the, security of tenor, the security of tenure provisions under the Act, uh, as well as all sorts of other, other, other parts of, of legal protection. So I see. are excluded from, from all of that. And so then what would the main issues be in the rental sector in terms of access and, and affordability, security of tenure in the sector? Well, for all renters, there are, at the moment, as I'm sure you're aware, a range of problems. Uh, supply uh, supply of, of, of accommodation is one of the biggest ones, and that has kind of a domino effect then uh, on security, on affordability and so on. So the, so at the moment, we know from the DAFT uh, rental quarter two report from earlier this year, that uh, earlier in the summer, that uh, supply of rented accommodation is at its uh, is, is kind of at its joint all time lowest since since records began, and we know that despite the introduction of things like the rent pressure zones, which are designed to contain rent increases to a maximum of four percent per annum, uh, we're still seeing kind of a skyrocketing of rents. So we know that affordability of rented accommodation is the lowest of any housing tenure in Ireland, um, and that the rent to the rent to income ratio. Which which kind of measures uh, to what proportion of your income is going on your on your on your uh, housing uh, is in Dublin at about fifty five percent and in Cork about thirty seven percent and it's recommended that anything over thirty percent and housing inaffordability begins to really bite which can result then of course in having to divert kind of much needed funds in, into your into your housing which could be used on other uh, kind of essentials of life. Uh, so, so we know that. So, for all renters, there are there are a range of issues regarding that, but specifically regarding security. Although Ireland's kind of security of tenure regime is quite good on paper, 
there are some significant loopholes that are undermining security, not just for licensee renters, but for, 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 but, for the ten, but for tenants with all the protections of the Act. So we know, for example, that uh, uh, there, is, there is the ability uh, for, land, for landlords to, to, um, to uh, mandate that tenants uh, leave on the basis that the, the, the apartment or house is required uh, for sale, for substantial renovation, or to bring in uh, a relative of that of that person, of so um, there is evidence that these provisions are being used in order to evict tenants to bring in more tenants later at much higher rates. Um, so, so even within our kind of uh, security of tenant regime and paper, uh, there are big issues in terms of is it really is it really is it bulletproof or can people just be evicted? And then would licensees be even more vulnerable again, given that they don't have access to the um, the residential tenancies board and stuff like that? That's right. Um, under uh, basically, licensees uh, don't have any security of tenure. They they can be they can be asked to leave with for any reason. Uh, and only being given reasonable notice, which could be a couple of days, a week, a couple of weeks. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. They don't have access to the dispute resolution of uh, processes of the of the RTB. So if they were to contact the RTB, uh, they will be told, "Well, we don't have jurisdiction." Um, because you're not on the lease. Because you're not on the lease, and because under the legislation, mm-hmm. uh, landlords do not have to register. The occupancies of licensees, okay. so they're invisible as well. Okay. This is a whole other issue. Right. We don't know how many licensees there are uh, because they're not counted. Okay, and that's partly because the their occupancies are. That's really interesting. Seeing that many houses have four bedrooms, or a load of student houses have four or five bedrooms, and w- only one person might be on the lease. So then the other four mm. parties are like nowhere. Yeah, sometimes they may be on the lease. Okay, in, in many cases yeah. they would. Uh, but if not, um, then they, they really have quite a precarious legal status. Okay. And so this seminar that you were organising, it, it, the aim of it was to kind of bring some of the research findings into the, in, into the world. Is that correct? That's right. We interviewed uh, a number of, of, of individuals who had come to Threshold in Cork with their housing issue. Uh, as well, we also had the opportunity to interview uh, some individuals <clears throat> who had come to the Korean Society of Ireland. Um, it's we we know that migrant groups are particularly vulnerable uh, to overcrowding, to exploitation, uh, and to 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 the kind of issues uh, uh, surrounding the rental sector, particularly the informal end of the rental sector. So we were able to interview those, uh, and at the seminar uh, we had a speaker on the, because of the legal context around licensees and possible policy uh, remedies to their problems. We also had some. Uh, accounts of the the issues being experienced by these very specific cases and what they might tell us uh, about the bigger picture. Okay, and when was the actual seminar on, Mark? It was last week. It was last Thursday. Okay, and was there a good turnout to it? Yeah, there was. We had there was there was representatives from from the RTB, uh, from Threshold, from Dublin, Cork, and Galway. Uh, we had you know people from UCC student accommodation mm-hmm. because of course anyone in student accommodation as well is a mm. licensee as well. So it's, mm. this is certainly a relevant issue uh, for for universities and student populations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean. One of the purposes of the project really was to make the case that more research is required into this. This was a small exploratory study. We were able to identify cases of fairly gross exploitation, uh, cases of, of, of eviction of vulnerable people for no cause, um, and, and, and which had serious impacts on their mental health as well as, as, well, sure. as, as, well as their finances. Yeah. There were scams involved yeah. as well. Uh, and these people were all left without recourse. Mm. 
So, um, and potentially homeless potentially at, at a time homeless. of uh, housing crisis. Several of our interviews had to, interviewees had to engage with homeless services as a result of their evictions. So we're what what we're calling for is 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 for further research into it. And the RTB, uh, as a state agency, has a legislatively a legislatively mandated role in feeding back to the government. Uh, research, undertaking research itself, but also feeding back to the government uh, its views and opinions regarding the operation of the Act uh, and, and so on. So we would certainly say that there is, there, there is a case uh, for significant further research into the extent of licensees in the sector, the range of their experiences uh, and what kind of should be done uh, to remedy some of those. So basically, ideally, it should be the PTRB or who, who should do this itself to conduct this research? Well, it's it's under legislation. It certainly has that role. Okay. Uh, and um, but um, in terms of, there would obviously also be a place uh, for uh, independent researchers in universities in that, and also or a partnership approach, maybe partnership yeah. approach with NGOs. As as this kind of as this example showed, it, it can be done quite effectively. This was on a small scale, mm. but we think there's a need for a much bigger study. Having done that now, uh, you know, in the applied social studies school, do, do you find that there is merit in this partnership approach to undertaking research, particularly in something like this that has real practical, real life consequences for people. Definitely. Um, I, I mean, I, I had the pleasure <coughs> of working uh, a couple of days a week in, in Threshold's office in Cork over the summer, uh, and I was able to, to you know, to be kind of in the midst of of the calls coming in, to be able to speak with. Uh, the staff there about the kind of issues that were coming up, and they were at the cold face mm. of this. We are, we only presented a small number mm. of cases uh, in our seminar, but uh, thresholds at threshold are, are, are hearing these cases every single day on the phone, uh, and to be able to sort of feed that into our research to sort of make that a part mm. of it. Uh, and also to involve them in kind of coming up with ideas about what could or should be done uh, was really valuable. We had a representative from Threshold uh, who spoke on the day uh, and made a really good contribution. And some of, you know, we're kind of making the point that a lot of the cases we were identifying uh, in our research were at the uh, the less severe end of the scale. Okay. And that, the, you know, the, the kind of, of, of insecurity and impacts of that mm. that are so prevalent uh, in our city, uh, it's everywhere. And there's a lot to be done on it. And I think a partnership approach uh, is, it, it definitely has a place. Last question, Mark, and thanks so much for, for coming in to talk to us about this important issue. Can you give us some solutions to the issues experienced by licensees? Any, you discussed some of the ideas that you um, talked to Threshold about. What, what can we do to improve the lot of licensees? Mm. Well, one obvious um, one obvious thing to do would be uh, to first of all, uh, s- some of the things could be to uh, improve the lot of all renters. And one very obvious and basic thing would be to establish um, a deposit protection scheme, which has actually been signed into law, but which has not yet been activated by the minister. Never commenced. It hasn't been commenced. Uh, there's obviously, uh, as is kind of typical in this sort of situation, landlord interests are very, very strong, mm. and um, and there's there's a lot of reticence. To, to implement pro-tenant measures. Yeah, but surely now with the housing problem, there should also be uh, interest in tenant protections and tenant interests, or are they just not a very strong lobby group? They're not a strong lobby group. Tenants, you know, comprise 30% of, of all households in Ireland, but um, but in terms of political clout, uh, we're considerably weaker. Uh, you know, you can see that in measures like the rent pressure zones, which are trying to balance 
uh, the, sort of the rights of of land of land uh, of landlords and tenants. But because of the loopholes, because of the reticence in taking really strong measures, uh, this you know, kind of profiteering often mm. finds a way. Um, and there needs to be much stronger provision. For licensees particularly, expanding access to the dispute resolution processes of the RTB would be a really obvious step. In the absence of that, um, any, any, any licensee raising an issue with their occupancy can be, can be evicted for mm. no reason, simply for, for, so that, alone. for that alone. Yeah. So there's an absolute chilling effect on even a licensee even raising any issue with their occupancy. Mm. And for all renters, uh, unless there is the ability to do that without the possibility uh, of, of being on of the streets, yeah, which can you know because of the existence of loopholes. So we need to take a, a good hard look at what security of tenure means in practice rather than on paper. And specifically for licensees, is it really acceptable to having a, to having a form of rental tenure, uh, which essentially confers the same rights on licensees as those in in hotels or hol- holiday lets? emergency accommodation or nursing homes. Licensees who may be in long-term rented accommodation would, would have rights equivalent to those in those situations. So I think this, this issue needs a, a long, hard look. Okay. Dr. Mark Cullinan, thanks so much for coming in to talk to us about the recent seminar on licensees and private rented accommodation, the forgotten subsector. They certainly do sound like they're forgotten and in need of um, strong political uh, sensitization. Uh, you've been listening to Law and Justice. I'm Jane Mulcahy. This was our fourth episode. We'll be back in two weeks and we'll have a special feature on the UCC Law Society conference that was on today. It was a f- fantastic morning. I was there until about 12.30 when I had to go off to class. But there, the conference was on criminal law, the Sexual Offences Act 2017, reforming law to reform attitudes. And it was looking at the whole area of sexual consent what that means, human dignity and defining consent which has uh, only now occurred which is rather shocking but anyway look forward to speaking to you then in two weeks time, this was Law and Justice, bye bye Something strange in your neighbourhood Who you gonna call Ghostbusters something weird and it don't look good Who you gonna call Anyway. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Yeah, well, we were, we were 